after we've sort of gone through that transformation, and I'm not trying to say we're not agile and things don't change and, and it can still be chaotic at times, but now it requires people who get shit done on time, every time, and who loves KPIs, who loves to deliver. Like it's a sport, you know, to want to be the best and deliver above expectations. And we could just see what the team that had built Canopy Lab to where it was, was not going to be the team that was going to do that. Uh, and we actually ended up having a, a almost 100% turnover in staff. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that philosophy comes from Sarah Josephine Yort, the co-founder and CEO of Canopy Lab, who emphasizes the future is for the bold. And throughout today's discussion, Yort shares why your algorithms should focus on intimacy, how to think with an exponential mindset, and what the future of global education could look like. So without further interruption, may I introduce to you episode 183 with the real Sarah Josephine Yort. Enjoy. how it went today and how we can improve but with that being said good people let's get this show on the road here here we go now in five four three two and one and welcome everyone to this episode of the real leaders podcast i'm your host kevin edwards joining us today is sarah josephine yorth the co-founder and ceo of canopy lab sarah thanks for being with us today Oh, it's so awesome to be here. I can just sense it's going to be a great day. In Denmark, we've seen the stores open for the first time since December this very day. So I'm feeling super energetic and so excited to talk to you. I love it. I love it. Let's bring the energy. Let's keep it going today. And happy Monday to everyone listening today. We're going to have a great start to the week here. Now, Sarah, we were talking before the show and you just kind of alluded to kind of what's going on in Denver. Tell our audience about what's going on in your neck of the woods. Well, um, while we haven't seen um, the the pandemic sort of um, really take over Denmark in the way we've seen with our offices around the world, not in the sense we've seen in Colombia or Peru or even in Vietnam, um, I think the Danish government, they've been very careful. So they very deliberately shut down large portions of um, the country. And that's worked well in terms of uh, not a lot of people have um, died from COVID and not a lot of people are sick. But I think there's um, the times are changing a little bit and there's almost like a popular revolt happening. People are saying it's time to open up. Uh, more and more people are vaccinated and also the stores, they simply won't survive unless we do something different. So, so we're at this um, time in history where people are saying we need to see some changes and the changes have happened. The government have listened and we're now seeing stores open more and more so. Now, you yourself is someone who wants to see change as well. Disruption tends to go with uh, the word AI as well. So when you see a pandemic like this happen, and the one solution is to go inside, how do you think about this with your tech background and knowing the possibilities of AI? Well, I think, first of all, I uh, when I look back at it, I can't believe I didn't realize like what a big shift it would be up until things really started to change. So right when the pandemic hit, I was in Vietnam at our office there. And um, you know, we could see on TV that people were sick in China, but we didn't quite fathom the fact that it would spread worldwide. And actually this weekend in Denmark, so we came back from Vietnam, came to the headquarters in Denmark. This, it was the, a year anniversary of the first infected person in Denmark. And they actually reran a lot of the news episodes where um, the Minister of Health came on and said, we don't expect people in Denmark to get infected. It will not influence us in a significant way. And boy, were they wrong. They were so wrong that at the time I flew, I was going to go to South by Southwest Education. And actually, a few hours before I got on my flight, it got canceled. But I decided to still go to Austin because it was the first time you know, I was going without the kids uh, for a prolonged time uh, to the U.S went anyways and then the whole world just it just changed you know i was there in austin that the conference got canceled and uh, by thursday i had to make it home because uh you know president trump at the time was shutting down the country too but i think in that moment i realized okay if you're working with learning and if you're working with artificial intelligence 
this is the moment for you to graduate and be able to like take your offering you know to the market and really make a difference um i think a couple of things you know really kind of stuck with me uh, the idea that every teacher around the world would be digitizing the same courses thousands and thousands of times um, macroeconomics introduction to american history 101 so there was this thing where like there's going to be a behavior now that's necessary that doesn't make sense because everyone's going to have to transition to digital they're all going to do it in the boring way they're used to by doing a lot of physical labor and trying to make a cool digital course but that's really something that you could automate using artificial intelligence so i think in, in that moment you know me by myself like almost by myself in austin by a swimming pool realized i gotta change our advertising i gotta tell people about the fact that you can actually you know automate almost an entire course creation process using ai so we can really make a difference out there and i think you used a key word in there half people have to change they have to change and and when this whole thing happened I've, i have a few family members who are professors who are teachers who are like i can't figure out zoom and, the, and my students are saying oh my gosh like this is so annoying this is so laggy i i don't like uh, the breakout rooms but folks this is only the beginning and when you have something like ai where you can have personalized education you may not even need a teacher how do you see your product as well as others influencing the way students are learning? Well, I think first of all, um, I think that there's been this rhetoric for years that teachers, they're not tech savvy and they're not very adaptable um, and they're not really prone to receive uh, constructive feedback. But I actually will say that I think teachers are the most adaptable humans on earth. I mean, has any other person had their, in, like what they do every day completely altered with no warning and then you still have to show up and ensure like an entire generation of young people learn something you know like they couldn't take a single day off they just had to get back to work and figure figure things out and obviously that's difficult so i think at, at canopy lab we don't really try to uh get rid of the teacher but what we think about is that you know i used to teach at university during my phd and there are a lot of situations where a teacher can do a lot of good, can really inspire a lot of people and bring out the best in them. But there are also a lot of things you do as a teacher, regardless of whether it was me at, you know, teaching at master's level or if you're teaching much younger kids, there's a lot of what you do that don't necessarily create a lot of value for you or the student. An example of that is like grading. You know, you, you rarely get a lot out of, and I know it's like you're not supposed to say, I don't get anything out of it, but you don't get a lot out of grading. Sometimes at a master's level, I read a thesis that's quite interesting, but I probably could have read something better somewhere else. So that was an area that was quite ripe for disruption. Also, another thing is giving feedback. We tend to say, oh, no, when teaching goes online, people won't receive feedback anymore because it'll all be, you know, it'll be an AI. It'll be this, you know, screen, it'll be video. Thinking that students get a lot of feedback the moment they leave high school is a complete illusion. Yes. The moment you graduate to university level, you barely ever get any feedback. So to me, there's an enormous promise in artificial intelligence being able to give us this, you know, feedback that we actually don't have time to give students. And then I think just very, I guess, you know, I also am faculty at Singularity University, um, both like in Silicon Valley and in here with the, um, the office in, in Denmark as well. And there we try to think about things like, how can you uh, leverage technology to really make a difference, to think big? You know, I mean, we just saw Percy, you know, on Mars. You know, how do we think that kind of moonshot thinking about education? And there, I remember being at the NASA Ames Research Center um, and thinking, you know, a few years back, quite a few years back, everyone was experimenting with this self-driving car. And I thought, okay, what if, um, like, what's the equivalent of a self-driving car in education? Like hmm. all the components that go into that. What if we try to do the same sort of moonshot thinking? And then I said, what if you could build a course that builds itself, the self-driving course, right? It's like almost a literal translation. We said, well, what's the fuel, right? The innovation with the self-driving car and with the electric car was that we it runs on something different. And we said, what if it had an AI engine and it ran on content? There's hmm. an abundant content out there. You're producing content with me right now. 
what if we took this podcast, threw it into an AI engine? Could you actually build a course built on that content, on audiobooks, on textbooks, on videos that you never read? And the answer is that you can, because you just have to break it down into some chunks that were very tangible. And I mean, I'm not going to say they were easy to make because it certainly weren't easy, but they made sense. So the first thing is you upload the content, you meta tag it. What are we learning from it? What is it about? What are the important points? Then you go in and you use it to auto-generate a description. What are we learning? What are the key points from the text? And finally, we could also combine them with exercises. For example, like um, a journal. What have I learned from taking this course? What are the key terms? What are the things I should remember? And you could do key quizzes to it too, all generated by an AI. So that's something you can do today. And that frees up time for all the teachers out there who aren't spending time on figuring out, you know, what should I put in my syllabus? But they're learning how to use Zoom and they're spending the time face to face with their students. And I think that's like, that's what we have to take away from this. We have to build things that are smarter, build things that solve real problems. Because a lot of people thought when the pandemic started, like it'll only last a few weeks. And then it was like, it might only last a few months. We're not really going to make that amazing course. We can't make that investment. Maybe we'll wait a few months and see if we're going to open up our school. Now we know the pandemic's not going anywhere. So it's an open invitation for us to change how we're working and to start working in a smarter way. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's so exciting. And it's interesting to kind of learn how the thinking progressed and how you have to think in order to build out a platform like this. You know, I think I was mentioning before the show, our, our first conversation, that we are taking some of these podcast clips and trying to put it into, you know, these pre-recorded interviews. However, I think what your platform does that's so, you know, that at least it understands is that the pre-recorded platforms aren't as tailored to the student. Every student learns differently. So when it comes to just like the modern day class where you have these dinosaur textbooks, I mean, if you're listening to this right now, I want you to think about the last textbook that you read. Who was the author? What were the concepts that you took away from it? And if you can honestly answer that question, congrats to you, because I don't remember any of the textbooks that I read in, in college, of course, that might just be me. But Sarah, tell us, when it comes to modern education, what does it look like from an institution standpoint? Well, I think, first of all, you know, I graduated first from, from um, my bachelor's in 2008, I think. And there, that the college experience was very centered around the semester starting. You'd go to the bookstore where you'd like spend serious cash, right? And you couldn't buy your friends who were ahead of semester's book because they would, the authors would release a new version each semester very, very conveniently, right? So there was this huge focus on getting the books. They were heavy, they were expensive. For someone like me who you know was from Denmark and went back and forth a lot, there was absolutely no sense of digitization and there was no personalization. We're all reading the same things at the same time. And it didn't matter if we had read some of it in the past. Then fast forward when I did my degree in international relations at the master's level, I did it in Denmark. And there I had to reread so many of the same books. And you might say, well, you know, it was easy breezy. Yeah, but it was very uninspiring. So here we have to think about intelligent systems. So as humans, we're influenced by all the tech we see in the world, even when we're at school or at university. It's not like we say, well, the IT we're using at university, that's a whole different story. That doesn't have to live up to the standards of TikTok and Instagram and Netflix. Of course, we as consumers look at it and say, how come Netflix personalizes? How come it remembers what I like and what I don't like? How come it remembers what I already watched, what I know and what I don't know? And it doesn't feed me the same stuff. Education has to learn that we are influenced by trends that transcend industry. So for example, I was giving a presentation to a group of architects the other day, and I showed them a, um, like a screenshot of my page on Netflix. And I, and I told them, this seems almost to me as intimate as showing my underwear drawer. I'm showing the most intimate data about what I'm watching because all you saw on it was, first of all, only television in Korean. It was all history, 
romance, and sci-fi. And by that, I have actually told quite a lot of people what I am doing in the evening. I'm obviously learning Korean by exploring the topics that I love, history, sci-fi, and romance. Um, but there, Netflix to me is the, is the example of the perfect curation. Not that it's flawless and not that humans are complex and can't be captured entirely by an algorithm, but that they understand the curation of the individual. You know, they understand that the future is personalization. And using the same techniques, you can personalize education. The biggest mistake we make is to think that we have to invent, like invent everything from scratch. So many of the innovations that we've done in my company, we've done because we saw an algorithm work well on Amazon or on Netflix or in a, an accounting program. And we said, what's the same application in education? How do we help personalize and curate education so that you know, people are as happy using a learning product as they are using a, like entertainment product? So then explain to our audience then, what are some of the AI features that Canopy Labs platform possesses around, let's say attacking the knowledge gap? Students, like we said, they learn differently. What are some algorithms that Canopy Lab has developed that can solve some of these problems? So from the moment you log onto the platform, we really think about getting to know you, why you are there and how you prefer to learn. So the most difficult in curation is not knowing what people know and what they don't know. It's actually knowing how they prefer to learn and what their competences are. Mm. And that's still very difficult. We're actually working with several postdoc and PhDs to, to try to figure out how to make the algorithms better. But from the moment you log onto the platform, you're given um, a test that was developed by our chief learning officer and a corporate psychologist, um, and then our AI team. We ask you questions again, why are you here? Because I think for all of us now, the big why matters, you know, in everything we do in life, not just I'm here because I have to, like, why am I here? What do I want out of it? And then we begin to ask you questions about um, how you prefer to learn. Do you want to learn through quizzes? Do you prefer to, to um, if you, for example, are, are given a problem and you have no idea what the problem is about? Are you the type of person that will start by conducting research or do you dive into a brainstorm? And these questions help us curate the learning experience to you, the learning experience that comes afterwards. Because we have built several models on different personas and people and ways that you learn and you can move through a curriculum. Some concrete, yeah. go ahead. Well, I was just—I was going to say, yeah. I think you know the days of uh, cramming for a test, you know, the night before an exam are over. Um, and this new this new wave of continuous learning, personalized education, assistance, understanding how you like to learn—is it through writing papers? Is it through taking multiple quizzes? You know, it's just fascinating to see what this will do for society as a whole. And also, I know you started this to also bring it to people that uh, are in underserved populations, places around the world, you know, explain maybe the intent of Canopy Lab yeah. to begin with. Yeah, of course. So Canopy Lab actually started as a nonprofit. It was during my early PhD years. Um, I felt extremely frustrated. I, I was at a university that is very well known for problem-based learning and working. So for those of you who don't know what that is, it's essentially about uh, allowing the students to identify, for example, real world problems create a hypothesis, and then work through the semester to solve those problems. So already I'm at a university that's really trying to empower students to not just write a paper, but to go out, solve big challenges. But I still felt very restricted by the format. I didn't think we were doing enough hackathons. We weren't doing enough debates. And I think I sensed this enormous hesitation with my students. When, um, you know, I remember this one time I came in, you know, I came into the classroom and I said, let's do something different today. I know I assigned these three peer-reviewed papers, um, but let's tear them up and let's do role-playing. And they just got terrified. Uh, and they, you know, I, like getting a student today to tear a peer-reviewed paper, it was like almost asking them to jump off a bridge. They're like, can we do this? And I'm like, wanna shake them and say, you know, own your own life. You can do whatever you want. But anyways, I felt like something is wrong. We have to change the way that, you know, we're all learning. Uh, and then I thought, I didn't necessarily think like I could do it better, but I thought someone can do it better. And that starts with research. Like how do people want to learn? Whom do they want to learn from? And then in the, in the phase of researching that, we started a YouTube channel 
And then I quickly came to the realization, first of all, that we needed to invite other voices into the conversation. So I think when we work with diverse communities, it's about several different things. It's one, the digital learning space has historically been dominated by a very limited amount of voices. It is university professors and publishers. So like the big schools, the big publishers, they pretty much own the conversation. But everywhere else, we're seeing civil society, we're seeing private companies play a much larger role in the talk about democracy, in the talk about human rights, in the talk about art, history, whatever it is. So I felt very strongly that we needed to invite in uh, NGOs from all over the world to be a part of the conversation and to have access to some of their amazing content. So that was kind of like the first part of it. So today we have, I think it's 114 NGOs that uh, are creating free courses for youth uh, on, on a platform we made available totally for free called The Lab. So that was sort of the one bit. The other part is that I think I've always been inspired by um, trying to make a difference, um, not just you know at home here in Denmark. So I think when you look at the pandemic, some of the rhetoric and messaging we get from politicians that actually bothers me a lot is that people say, uh, act local, buy local, be responsible in your neighborhood. And of course you have to also act local. But the problem is that all of us with money are acting local. So what about all the other places in the world where they can't get out of this crisis on their own? Mm. Actually only thinking locally is also a problem. You know, only thinking America first, only thinking Denmark first, that is a problem for half of the globe. So I think with education, again, I'm quite provoked that half of the world's population get access to great tech later. You know, a lot of them are still trying to come online. So it's not like, you know, this is a pretty uphill battle to try to make a difference. A lot of the places we are in Africa, a lot of the places we are in South America. But essentially, I, I just, I find this, you know, that the, the, the digital divide, it's not being eliminated fast enough. The richer are getting richer. You can hear I'm very Scandinavian in, in my opinion, but I felt we have to give this, you know, we have to create a free learning platform for youth. And to give a concrete example of why it was important. We, for example, early on saw this surge in activity from Venezuela, young kids in Venezuela that want to learn about entrepreneurship, that want to learn about history, that want to learn about women's rights. If we put that behind a paywall, one, they can't afford it, two, they don't really have credit cards. So we just saw that trying to monetize that, it would it was just counterintuitive when you look at the mission that we were on. So then we said, okay, you know, we can be a modern Robin Hood, not to be, you know, I, that's a company that right now you don't want to be associated with too much, but saying we can create a for-profit part where we sell our software to schools, universities, um, and companies. And then we can create, you know, first what we created, the lab, where we said we feel totally comfortable that it doesn't have a monetization model. And in Europe, that makes investors nervous. But in America, they say where there is community, there is power. Where there is community, there is eventually monetization. So I think for us, you know, we now have investors that are very comfortable with saying we will find the business model later. For now, it is about us making a difference. And then I also think, you know, those of, of us that work with algorithms, obviously it would be naive not to also say that you need massive amounts of data to create a valuable personalization algorithm. So at the end of the day, it all makes sense to do it together. It's it's incredible to hear, you know, a leader speak like that and says, you know, it work, it's, it's almost like a right to have you know, pe people or a right to give people access to education like this, or else we're just another part of the problem and the divide gets bigger and larger and larger over time. I think Peter Diamandis you know, of Singulator, Singulator University said it best, you know, the world's biggest problems are also the world's biggest business opportunities. You know, people, uh, if you can serve these customers, uh, you know, 4 billion people in poverty and you reach those people, you're going to have customers for life and you're gonna make the most money in the world as well. So it's also a nice business opportunity as well. Now, when it, I know you're all around the world, Sarah, but when it comes to communities that are leapfrog communities, when I say leapfrog communities, to me it means someone who has leapfrogged the desktop, who has gone straight to the mobile device. Now the internet is more accessible to them. 
do you see a correlation with the leapfrog and kind of your products and, and children accessing them for their own education around the world? I mean, I, I definitely do. So I think that what we've seen is that um, for us, it's it's easier to to get a client or to get a free user for one of our platforms in an emerging market. It's both easier and cheaper and they're more active. So that kind of ticks all the boxes. And I think it's also because, you know, when we talk to a school in South America, they want the best. They're digitizing for the first time. They haven't, you know, already made some contract with some of the big players in the market that last three, five or seven years. So they're saying, we're going out, we're digitizing now for the first time, we're making an investment for the first time and we want the best. So they go out and they really research the trends and say, we want something that has AI curation. We want something that's personalized. We, they increasingly want something that had, you know, the power to build a virtual community. Whereas I think, especially in the Nordics, they look at uh, a long history of excellence. They look at whether you know you you can be a part of public procurement, whether you are you know have been pre-approved by the government to some extent. So I think that the 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 way we look at a service when we buy it is with totally different glasses. And what that means is that we're seeing communities that are leapfrogging, but also that not just with their digital offerings, this transcends the entire educational system. Last time when I was in Peru, we got to visit some different universities. They're, they're thinking around how you design a university is fundamentally different. Because first of all, they know we can't fit all the students in here. It's never gonna happen. Our young population is growing. Mm. So we will of course have to have a hybrid format, a blended format. Sometimes they're here, sometimes they're not. Some of them we're never gonna see, but they'll have a hybrid format in the sense that they'll still if they're gonna be a nurse, they'll still have to go out and you know, they're not gonna be put in a room and then it's virtual reality and they'll never see a person, but they understand that their primary reference point doesn't have to be the school. That also changes the design of the school. Then the school is designed with 3D printers, with community spaces, because when you are together and being together is extremely valuable, you still have to be together. I, I never think we should change to a format that's only digital, but then when you are together, you're doing something different you're not necessarily giving them that curated feedback because they already got the feedback, but you may be discussing the feedback over a coffee. You know, they're not coming to hear you lecture, they're coming to do debate or they're coming to do role-playing. And if you then deliberately design your school, then those spaces are gonna look very different from when we used to teach where there's one person talking and the rest of them listening. So it, it changes everything. And that's why some of these places will be so much ahead of the rest of us because we're not even looking. I mean, we're beginning to repurpose spaces in, in our schools, but we're not designing new universities every day. And, and again, the design inside of them are, are they're already outdated. I love this global perspective and, and just hitting on the point of localism again. Now, this perspective i believe is also unconventional it's not traditional you can't find as many people that share unfortunately share the same values share the same philosophy of business so when it comes to culture sarah um, how important is it to find the right people the right investors the right stakeholders with the, the the same values and culture and did you run into any challenges when you started canopy lab i mean it is tremendously important because i think that still many investors think today that in order to scale a company, in order to grow it, and whether you're on track to IPO or whatever it is that your dream is, they say, own the local market first and then go global. Whereas we're seeing new startups that have grown into scale-ups that are growing into very mature companies that said, the local market doesn't have to matter. Maybe you can take over the entire world at the same time, or maybe you can take over a foreign market first. So I think we have to kind of reshape our thinking because what is the, the chance, what are the odds that the product that I am making is simply best suited for Denmark? You might say, okay, well, you grew up in Denmark, you've been socialized in Denmark, so therefore the product is maybe essentially Danish, but that's not true. We're much more complex humans today. You know, I'm half Iranian, uh, grew up in Denmark. I've lived in Australia, I've lived in Russia. I spent you know, many of my youth years in the United States. 
Um, so we are a fragment of having, you know, some of us at least, of having consumed, operated in, and being inspired by the entire world. So we build global products because we increasingly live in a global world. At least those of us watching this, those of us that have access to be here together in this very moment. And that, of course, requires a very special kind of person, a very special CEO, a special investor, and a special type of employee to be a part of that. And that has not always been easy. I know for sure, um, like about three and a half to four years ago, um, you know, we kind of looked at Canopy Lab. So the thing, you know, when you launch a company first, I would say it almost requires one generation of people to do that in the sense that they're the ones that want to shape everything from scratch. They want to write the personal handbook. They want to build the website. They want to build the prototype. They want to find out what, how should we communicate. They want to go out and try and iterate fast. But then after you've taken in more sizable investments, you've locked in the product, you've found the product market fit, then it's a different kind of person it requires. You know, mm -hmm. that first person who wanted to begin charting the world or charting space, that's not the same person that now loves compliance, that now loves getting new KPIs, that loves investor reporting. It's a whole other animal once you get to that stage. And I think we saw at one point, after we sort of gone through that transformation, and I'm not trying to say we're not agile and things don't change and, and it can still be chaotic at times, but now it requires people who get shit done on time, every time. And who loves KPIs, who loves to deliver, like it's a sport, you know, to want to be the best and deliver above expectations. And we could just see what the team that had built Canopy Lab to where it was, was not going to be the team that was going to do that. Uh, and we actually ended up having a, a almost 100% turnover in staff. Um, and P our investors thought it was wild, you know, they, uh, they, you know, and, and, you know, I think Chris, my co-founder and I, we've been in control for so long that, of course, you know, we have democratic processes where we listen, but we own the company. So in that sense, you know, we didn't ask for permission to do things. And I think, you know, there was a rumor around town that we didn't know how to hire or fire or since, you know, we had to make such a radical transformation. But I think for us, it was very deliberate and it was very calculated. And there's obviously a way of also thanking people in a proper way for what it is that they've done. But it was the best decision we had ever made. And it really allowed us to recalibrate and retake control of the culture and say, where are we? Where do we want to go? And how do we put together the team for this stage that are the best for this stage? And I think we've been incredibly successful doing that, but also in an unconventional way. You know, there's 38 of us now, you know, just before the pandemic, we were 11. So that in itself is a transformation that's rather fast. We expect to be over 100 uh, within one calendar year. And um, that transformation is exciting, but it also places us all over the world. I've been very, very inspired by, for example, like the CEO of Twitter, who always says like, um, you know, re remote first is going to be the new way that companies scale. And then people say, well, you know, you're, you're a major tech company. You have the luxury of recruiting talent all over the world. But this thinking, the best person for Canopy Lab for marketing or for partnerships or for AI, that's not going to be a person I'm going to find here in Denmark that is for sure not going to be the best person. So that's why we hire everywhere, like Tracy, our head of AI, you know, she's in Vietnam. Uh, and then we have people in Portugal, United States, Colombia, Peru. Like we're pretty much everywhere. Some people are a part of a small office, some are by themselves, totally remote. And then we have a sort of like a all, all hands on deck on Monday where all of us meet and we sort of set the direction for the team. And we do it in, um, we work in sprints, even in the non-tech team where I'm the sprint master that the, runs that whole process. And that's kind of like how we calibrate and make sure like everybody sees each other. It's so interesting, you know, cause like with a global perspective, you would think it'd be very difficult to get everyone to buy into this sense of camaraderie, to develop, to scale, uh, you know, is it shared values that brings everybody together? What do you think is a secret sauce of leading with a global perspective? I think it's it's a combination. You have to carefully craft that culture. And sometimes, you know, we've gotten it wrong as well. But 
when you don't see each other in person, and of course we try to still see each other in person sometimes, but this year where we've grown, it's been kind of difficult. And there's so many people that work for Canopy Lab whom I've never met, and that is very odd, you know. But I think we do do some things. For example, we all take part in this well-being at work um, that we have every other week, which we work with um, a, like a, a corporate coach. Her name is Daisy. And then, um, for example, she creates where, where everyone can say, you know, these are things that are important to us about the company culture, about how we give feedback, about how we ensure work-life balance. And then she takes those surveys and then she curates the themes. And then we have these, you know, interactive workshops where we work in different groups with each other. Sometimes, you know, they've submitted anonymous questions for me that I answer. And sometimes we've defined like, what is good communication in the company or how am I more considerate of my colleagues? So you have to craft, this is just one example of many things that you have to do in order for people to relate to each other in the mission that we're on, you know, when you don't really get to meet as we don't get to do now. But obviously there are many things that are difficult about, again, what is our feedback culture? How do we talk to each other? How can, um, in many ways, what I have a very direct uh, sense of leadership, a very direct leadership style. Is that Scandinavian or is it a San Francisco style of management? You know, should people receive feedback in different ways when you're in different places around the world? So there's lots to talk about, but we try to create those pockets where we talk to each other, where we have fun. I, I like, I just, my coach has taught me that there are different love languages. And the way I show affection, apparently, as a person is I love to give gifts. It makes me at least just as happy as the person receiving the gift. So, for example, for a Valentine's Day, I had curated that everyone got a little something, whether it was here. And it was quite the logistical exercise, I have to say. But that everyone, regardless of where you were, either got balloons or roses or chocolates. And, and that's where you try to kind of keep an eye on, on everybody and let them know you're there. I have, you know, open office hours in terms of 101s. Um, I try to talk to everyone. But of course, I know that's not scalable as we get much quicker, you know, much bigger than we are now. But we're trying to sort of work out the logistics as we go. We're kind of like a blitz scaling company. You know, we're building the rocket as we already jumped out and then we're figuring it out on the fly. I love it. Now, I'm just, my mind's racing around like this idea of like a global citizen. You know, it's like, well, now what barriers would you run into if you, if you had a global citizenship? You know, would you accept the same degree in Iran as you would in Canada to work in the United States? How, so, you know, where I'm thinking at is, is how do, how does this change in 20 plus years? Will we have a, a type of agreement where um, someone around the world can take the same class, go to the same, you know, structure with the same teachers, with the same, you know, classmates and have a degree that's acceptable around the world? Is that something that could be possible? Yeah, that is for sure happening, especially with the with the, the introduction of the blockchain technology in a more widespread set, setting in, in universities. So I think the idea that you're raising actually has to meet two implications. One of it is about how we manage people and how we manage employees, and one is about you know, the university setting. People are increasingly hacking their own schooling, whether it's because I'm taking just one class, you know, it could be one class at a university in Denmark, one class at Yale, whether I subscribe to a YouTube channel or Canopy Lab or Khan Academy, people are curating. It's more learner-centered, so we're already doing that. Big universities are resisting it because this means the dismantling of their existing business model. They're a dinosaur and they're hanging on by a cliff, but they are going to fall down unless they change it. So this will happen within a 10 year period. They're going to have to break down their degrees, look at it at a micro level, and you will be able to shop everywhere. It is going to happen again. They're going to resist it all they can, but they won't be able to do it much longer especially because companies like EY and other companies have said, we actually don't require you no, like any longer to have a bachelor's degree to work here. Hmm. So again, what is like, you know, for a long time, we bought into the model because it was necessary for our career advancement. Soon it won't be. So, so that will definitely, you know, you're definitely going in the right direction. Then in terms of when we manage the global workforce, what does that require of us as leaders? and as companies. And that's something uh, we looked at quite a lot this year. 
So in April last year, um, you know, after the pandemic had hit, we acquired a Peruvian uh, publishing startup called Yopublico. And it was our first acquisition. Uh, we couldn't, you know, we had been there before, but we haven't been since. So that's also like incorporating an entire culture, a new group of people inside of an existing culture in the midst of a pandemic. It's like a recipe for disaster. And maybe that's why it's it, it's gone so well. I think it's gone quite well. Um, but some of the things I'm constantly doing, and we're not done, there are still things you know we have to fix. But one of the things was looking at the benefits packages that people get in different cultures. So of course, it would be insane and not reasonable to say everyone gets the same salary because we're not paying the same kinds of taxes and stuff like that. So that's not what we're looking at. But what we did look at is things such as the rights to vacation. There isn't a logical point why a person in Denmark has six week, weeks paid vacation and a person in America doesn't. It's just because people have historically been stingy in America, I'm sorry. But the first thing, of course, that we did was to say, after a full year of employment in Canopy Lab, you have six weeks paid vacation. Hmm. That's something I'm incredibly proud of. Another thing that we did is that we said, after a year of employment, everyone has whether it's a male or a female, uh, at least three months maternity or paternity leave that's paid. And that's something that was also really important to us and not something that was common in a lot of the countries, Colombia, Peru, United States, Vietnam, where we were. We also gave everyone access to, so we were working with Daisy, our coach. Um, so everyone has access to this forum where we're all there. And then we've given some people additional support to talk to a coach. And what was really interesting to me, actually, is that when when we put together the coaching program, Daisy said to me, Sarah, so, you know, there's two ways you could do this. One is that I work with a group of people, you know, on their own, but you dictate kind of the topic and I tell you how they're progressing because I'm essentially a coach that's hired by the company. So you could say you need to work on your confidence or you need to work on your presentation skills. She's like, that's one way some companies do it. Another way that you tell them that's a confidential space just for you. And I'm not gonna, you know, while I'm paying, it's none of my business what you guys are talking about. And I think we really opted for that route because I just want people who can find these pockets of relief for all of their tension, you know, to figure out like, I guess I know and I accept that employees are people that you borrow for a period of time. And we know that especially with Jen said, and, and it'll continue to be so, you have them for a few years and then they're going to do something else. And that's going to be amazing for them because they also need to grow up and learn something new. So during that period when they are with me and I'm lucky enough that they're giving me, you know, most of their waking hours, it is also my responsibility to make sure that they're happy, that they're not overworked and that they're producing great results. And then I think that that happens more when they work with a coach on their own terms, rather than me trying to, produce something out of them as if I own them because I'm only borrowing them and you never know how long I'm borrowing them for. Mm. It's an interesting mindset as well to have, uh, I'm borrowing them, you know, as a, as an employee of your own organization. And also, I think it also goes really well with your culture from disrupting, you know, you're breaking out the day to day, you know, you're giving people time to rethink and, and recalibrate and, you know, you know, reform maybe some ideas about, you know, why they're doing what they're doing. Just out of curiosity, though, Sarah, is like, do you like vacations? I feel like you're go, 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 go. Like, are you able to go on a vacation? Um, yes, increasingly so. And um, I think like last year for the first time I went on a vacation and nothing was broken, you know, like everything still works. And I think that's a, a big lesson to managers if if you build yourself into the construction of that company so much that you can't go anywhere afterwards, you build a company that can never be acquired by someone else and a company that's not scalable and a company where people have not been empowered to do what they're doing on their own. But of course, I don't do a lot of vacationing. I'm not made for vacations. Like, you know, I, I then I tend to pick up absurd hobbies, you know, like last, you know, at least this season, I've gotten extremely good at baking. Uh, which is a thing I'm, I've always been terrible at, but I don't like being bad at things. Or for example, like one year I went to Thailand and I'm terrified of the water, terrified. Like I had a, had a very near drowning experience as a child. 
Uh, I learned to swim very late because I hate the water. And when I go out with people to the beach, I, I tell them in this very, you know, like I'm ruining the party. Do not in any way put my head underwater. I will freak out and I might pass out, you know? So I'm very like, you know, freaked out about the water. And then I got to this little island uh, in Thailand for a week and I thought, what the hell am I going to do? You know, already read like 10 books in like three days. Uh, so then I decided to become a scuba diver. So then I'll do ridiculous stuff like that um, if when I try to go on vacation. Or for example, last time where I had a couple of days vacation when we were in Vietnam, I decided to learn Korean. And that's why my Netflix is so crazy. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm not big on vacation, but I do appreciate when I was a child, um, you know, children, those of you who have kids or couldn't remember this from yourself, uh, sometimes you wake up and you don't want to go to school or you don't want to go to work. There's something. Maybe it's not necessarily because someone bullied you or you didn't study for your exam. Some days you just don't want to go. And I think my mom, she always said, if I came out and said, mom, my stomach hurts, I don't want to go today. She'd say, well, does your stomach really hurt or do you not want to go? And I said, well, I don't want to go. And she said, that's fine. Then we'll just not go today because you're having, in Denmark, we'll call it an ill day. She's like, you're having a bad day. You're having a need for a mental health day. So you're mm -hmm. going to take that day and then you're going to come tomorrow and you're going to feel great. And I think I took that philosophy very much into me in my adult life. And I encourage and continue to encourage my employees to do the same. Sometimes you got to take a day off on my expense, but because it will prevent you from getting sick or it will really make you yield much better results for several days and trying to take my own medicine. I have actually in the last two weeks been taking a little bit time off at my summer house, uh, you know, with my feet up, reading some books, building mm -hmm. my husband, building a bunk bed for the kids, because I think good ideas sometimes come when you're not when you're not too busy. Like, for example, a lot of the AI features that we are doing right now. I envisioned them um, when I had a very, really bad, terrible accident with my knee. And I, they had to open up my leg in seven places to fix it. So you can imagine the magnitude of that. It took me a full year to learn to properly walk inside of this machine with an air bubble. So it was a really big accident, not in the sense it was very undramatic when it happened, but it had pretty huge implications. And it was laying in bed for several days that made me think about a lot of the features we have now. So I think that unplugging is like, it's just essential to your creativity. Also for me to, for my temper, you know, you are just as a manager and, and I'm a bit of a feisty one, I have to say. So you have to also give yourself time to relax in order for, for you to really be in control of your mood because the mood of a manager can affect an entire organization. Uh, and I think that, I think also there is something to say about female managers that have a bit of a temper that we have to be extra careful. I think in my industry, I mean, come on, you know, it's March 1st today. You know, it's um, it's Women's History Month. It's the first day of Women's History Month. I think we can't, you know, go go there without having to explore the fact that I am a female manager of a of a company working with artificial intelligence and hardcore tech. And um, I think I'm very aware of the role I play with that as well. It's interesting. Like, yeah, how do you perceive that? Like, I mean, I, I grew, I've grown up and most of my bosses have been female, so I don't really sound like a big deal to me. But like for you, like specifically, do you consider yourself like different in any aspect? Like, do you not like it when people bring that up? Or like, how do you perceive like being a, a, a female leader of a you know big company? Well, I, I uh, love being a female leader of a big company. I always thought I was going to be blessed with a lot of girls. Now I've been blessed with boys only. Um, but I, I, um, I really love working with women and making them more aware of who they are and their potential. Um, so I think, and this is obviously like you have to find your own balance and what you can get away with. And this is very individual. But already when I started teaching at uni, I was, I wouldn't say I was hard on the women, but I tried to make them aware of the fact that such a thing as many of them had very low voices, not naturally, mm. but for design. So I would say, I cannot hear what you are saying. Stop making excuses for yourself. Right. Your voice can fill this space. It's okay. So to try to kind of like push them to be like who they are. And then I think obviously in tech, you are confronted with the fact that you're a female because there are very few of us working in tech. Actually in Denmark, um, 
companies like mine, we survive because we're fueled by VC money. And in Denmark, only 2% of the VC money goes to companies founded by women and about just under 5% to mixed teams. So teams with a man and a woman. So in our case, it's a team founded by a man and a woman. So that makes us very much the, 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 the odd one out. So it's, it's hard not to be aware of it. And I think that in that later stage of life, I've, I've actually done some very deliberate things to address that. First of all, I don't wear pants. I actually think I wore pants earlier today for the first time in like two years. I have decided to fully embrace my femininity and I will not make excuses for it. Nice. I am over pink. The company is over pink and I'm overly in high heels as a provocation because I'm usually the only woman in the room when I'm at a conference, at an event with investors, whatever it is. So that's definitely something you know that we are. I'm being very mindful of hiring women. And in some, you know, especially when you're so hardcore tech as we are, it sometimes is hard. I think actually with the last uh, bump in hiring, we went from being 40% women to 30%. And I view that as a huge problem. It's definitely something that, you know, we need to address as, as fast as possible. But then also we released um, a YouTube show recently, kind of going back to our roots, uh, where we started as a YouTube channel, then we became, you know, an ed tech company. But I run the show that is designed for an entirely female audience where I dissect the weekly trends in tech and view it from a deliberate female angle. Even today, we talked about extremely controversial things such as the technology of the abortion pill and how the pandemic is forcing more women to take their abortion at home because it view, it's viewed as an elective operation in the United States. We've hmm. talked about period panties. We talked about Bumble. So I think that there actually is this need for a woman to come out and not people say like, you know, there's a glass ceiling and we got to break it. We got to shatter it because there's so many things about being a woman, being a manager, being a woman just in her private life. That's a secret or it's a taboo. I mean, I said period panties on live, you know, going live. It was like it felt like it almost felt like a crime. It felt weird. It felt odd. And that's a problem. And we're saying that's something, you know, where we're in a position to help address that. So talking to women about artificial intelligence, the newest tech, and doing it in a way where nothing's a secret. That's definitely something that's motivating me to go to work lately. I love it. It's refreshing to hear. Uh, and, you know, nothing will scare me either. I think I was telling you before, you know, I grew up working for female bosses for the women's basketball team in college. And let me tell you, I mean, I, I've washed my fair share of uh you know, panties and bra straps and, you know, cleaned up all the sweat and got a lot of hair ties. I've seen it all. There's nothing I haven't seen before. Picked up birth control pills. I mean, it's it's part of the game, you know, and, it, and it's, it's refreshing to hear that you're okay with that and that you don't have to be quiet about that because, you know, it's it needs to be told people and guys like myself need to be comfortable with it. You know, it's not like this taboo thing that's just like out there now. It's, look, it's 2021, you know, people are people and, you know, there's there are unique opportunities when you have, you know, an organization with a culture that's predominantly female, I mean, there there are definitely some some uh, upright uh, opportunities with that. Yeah, and I, I saw a study. Why is the U.S. the unicorn factory right now? Why is the mm -hmm. U.S. You know, producing so many companies valued at one billion or more? It's because investors, you know, in a very analytical way, looked at the market and said, "There's this whole group of potential unicorns." We're investing in them because they're underinvested in, but they're growing really fast. So it's actually like an incredible business opportunity to get a better return on our investment. They didn't do it for an ideological reason. Like Bumble did an IPO because people thought it's it's made by a woman. Let's invest in that. It's because they categorically saw that they were underinvested in and they could get a better return on it. And I think that's something that we're kind of trying. You know, Canopy Lab was recently nominated to the like the future unicorn award that's given by Digital Europe here in the European Union. Uh, and I was really proud to see there are several female founded companies in that category, but we're kind of trying to talk more about our journey to inspire more women to also become unicorns if that's what they want. Some of them don't want that, but there actually hasn't, as in never ever, been a female founded unicorn to come out of the Nordics. Not yet, we're behind the United States on that. So some of us are trying to lift a generation of women. I'm trying to be first, 
But if someone else beats me to the punch, I'll be right there with champagne and flowers, you know, because we got to see the first one come now. So while I'm racing, I'm trying to drag everyone with me so we can get the first female founded companies. And I do believe, I don't mean to sound too gendered, but I do believe that sometimes we're better at creating companies that are aware of things we've experienced on our own. I know mm -hmm. that Sheryl Sandberg talked about this, about the first time she was pregnant. She realized that, um, that at, I think she was at Google at the time, they didn't have preferred parking for pregnant people. And then some of us might be thinking, like, why should there be preferred parking for pregnant people? Well, their parking lot is so big, you know? Right. By the time I made it to my office, I was exhausted. And sometimes you have to live some you know, problems before you actually go in and change policies in order you know, for a company to be able to accommodate that. And that's why it's super important to have all kinds of people. You know, we're just touching on the male-female debate, but we have to have lots of differences in a company in order. I mean, I can't, I make mistakes all the time um, due to lack of diversity. Uh, we've made the, in the way we design features, in the way we've asked people to tell us who they are, we have made enormous mistakes because we still are not as diverse as we should be, even though we constantly try to do better. So if I can give anyone one tip out there, it is really like your product will only become better if you in any capacity represent the people you're trying to sell to, and you probably don't. Sarah, we've used the term global perspective quite a bit on this show today, but I think the, the one term that hasn't been acknowledged is the term of holistic, holistic leadership, being able to understand yourself, others, and embrace those perspectives and you know make sure that people are becoming a better version of themselves. Because again, everything needs to be personalized. Everything, everybody has different ticks. So to you, what is holistic leadership and how do you incorporate it? I think holistic leadership is the realization that a person is more than the person they are at work and that we have to design their working life in a way that accommodates that. So in a way that sees them for the whole person they are. And I think the pandemic has really um made this um given a sense of urgency to this uh, because now all of our lines are blurred you're not either at work or at home you're not either a mother or a boss or a daughter many of us are everything at the same time even because of such a practical thing as many people working from home so we have to be able to understand where each employee wants to go what their dreams are what their visions are we have to see the individual, understand when they're tired, when they need an extra day off, understand and pay for the fact that they need vacation. You know, when we introduced this, um, our health and prosperity fund um, that our COO David helped create, you know, we, we asked questions, where do I see myself? You know, every employee, where do I wanna go? How do I think about, you know, wealth management? Do I wanna put my parents in a nursery home? Who I want to go back to school. We ask them all these questions because we try to view the period we have with that employee, but as a part of their extended life journey. Mm -hmm. And it's our job to be able to help them to where they're going. And then some people out there are going to say, but that's crazy because you're going to lose them. And why are you investing so much money in a person that will essentially at some point leave? But it is because they're going to be more productive when they're with us. But it's also because I am both, you know, a, a dreamer and naive enough to believe that if all of us do that, then we all are investing in a, a collective pool of employees. So when I steal someone from Salesforce or from Facebook or from anywhere else, that they will likely over time be treated in the same way. So I get a person who's rested, who's financially secure and who's on track to become the person that they want to be. And I think that's what it's all about. And I think this podcast has been all about the holistic self as well throughout these conversations, you know, talking about the benefits, talking about global perspectives around the world, understanding the consumer themselves, but also understanding how the culture needs to change, taking days off um, and letting people have those bad days and recu recuperate and come back. So Sarah, I'll leave you with this. Let's bring this home now. You talked about holistic leadership. What is your definition of a real leader? It is a person who is holistic, who sees the whole human at work and who steers the ship in the direction where you will prosper as a company and where everyone on that journey will prosper as well and realize their dreams and ambitions. 
Sarah, it's been a pleasure interviewing you today. I wish you much success uh, in 2021. Hope you also receive that award uh, up there in the Nordics. I hope we can help along. I hope everyone listening to this day enjoyed this episode uh, with Sarah Josephine Yorth, the co-founder and CEO of Canopy Lab. And for Sarah Dorth, I'm, I'm Kevin Edwards, asking you to go out there, be holistic, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. All right, good people, and thank you for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Sarah Josephine Yorth, the co-founder and CEO of Canopy Lab. An interesting episode today, folks. I learned a lot. I had a really fun time, Sarah, uh, asking you those questions, just, just absorbing kind of your mentality, this continuous learning mentality. You're you're watching Korean rom-coms. You're in you know Vietnam one week. You're in the South by Southwest in Austin, Texas the next, Peru in the other. Uh, it's been a, a pleasure having you on the show. And I know our fans have had a, a few questions. So let me read this one off first. And this one comes from Eric. Sarah, Eric asks, would you diminish the role of personal communication and coaching so quickly? Sure, information and knowledge is available, but would AI replace this? So I never think that AI should really replace anything. And folks, if you want to hear the rest of Sarah's answers, well, you have to be a part of our free community where you can unlock access to live interviews and ask guests your direct questions after the show. All you have to do is go online to realleaders.com slash podcast and click on any past or upcoming interview. Also, if you're an Apple podcast listener, help a leader out, please, please help us out and leave a review. Let us know what you like, how we can improve, and who you want to be on the show. Or more directly, you can just email me at b at real-leaders.com. That's be at real-leaders.com to tell me about a leader who is driving change in your community. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader, and stay tuned for the next episode.